Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Grown Up Girls Report podcast. I hope you are all doing well and enjoying the Aussie sunshine, which has finally decided to appear. So we are smack bang in the middle of January, which is my favorite time of the year. And I hope some of you still have your feet up and are relaxing. But if you've had to go back to work, well, then I'm sending you all my positive vibes because it's often very tough having to go back after a lovely big break. Now, I have such a great book for you today because it is book club week and it's something quite different. I'm going to be chatting with Nicole Webb about her book, China Blonde. Now, some of you may know Nicole. She used to be a newsreader with Sky News, but then she threw it all in for life as an expat with her husband and her daughter in Hong Kong and then China. And when I talk about China, I'm not talking about the very modern cities of Beijing or Shanghai. I'm talking about the ancient world of China's Middle Kingdom, where Nicole and her daughter Ava would be the only blondes for miles. Now, this memoir is about Nicole's trials and tribulations during her time in China, which are very honest and hilarious. But to me, it's actually so much more than that as well. This book is about the benefits of getting out of your comfort zone, digging deep and reinventing yourself in a brand new environment and just how empowering that can be. So, so many great messages and moments of inspiration for us all in this book. So without further ado, here is my chat with Nicole. So hi, Nicole. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's so <laughs> nice to meet you in person because after you read someone's book, you feel like you know them. That's why I had to give you a kiss when I saw you. But I know, I know. all about your life. And I love that because I've always been like that with authors that yeah. I've met in the past. And I thought, I wonder if that'll ever be me. So yes. it's quite nice that people have that little extra insight oh, into me. Absolutely. Totally. Don't have to tell you about myself. No. You just know. <laughs> I just know. I just know. Nicole, tell me, why China? Why China? <laughs> this is the million dollar question. Um, China, because we were in Hong Kong, mm-hmm. um, which we went uh, to in 2010. James got offered a job um, in the W Hotel there. And um, so I quit my job as a newsreader and off we went on a bit of a carpe diem mission, seize the day and all of that. And we spent four years in Hong Kong and loved it. I mean, of course, we had all of the culture shock and having a new baby there of course. and settling in and wondering what we'd done. Um, but once we kind of got over those hurdles, um, we were happy. But with hotels, they like you to uh, keep moving up and sure. conquering the next big thing. And James was number two at the W. And so for his career, he really needed to become general manager. And we were there for his career. So And, and also for me, I was kind of that adventurer was I was kind of thinking we needed a new adventure Um, but China wasn't on the radar okay so we were kind of putting um, the feelers out and a lot of jobs came up um, from you know Goa in India to Bali to Bangkok Mm. all would have been great oh yeah here's me like googling and then you know imagining myself in Bali wearing a bikini yeah writing my bestseller and then I was you know imagining myself in Bangkok and Seoul and South Korea and all of these amazing places but things would happen and either James wouldn't get the job or it would fall through and then China just kept coming up because of course they're a beast and they had something like 80 hotels alone with James company at the time being built in China. So they needed GMs and 
um, Wuhan came up. Now, tell me about that. You decided after a little bit of investigation Mm. not to go there. Yeah, and I think it was just because we weren't familiar. I'd been to Shanghai and that's, you know, probably the closest city to Hong Kong as far as comparing them. Um, Still chalk and cheese, but it's, you know, the biggest city, 24 million people. So I hadn't really been to a lot of other cities. And Wuhan, we went up there for the weekend because in hotels, again, you have something like 24 hours to make a decision, right. a life-changing yep. decision. So I'm like, we, we better go up for the weekend. And we flew up and, you know, it was probably just like every other city in China, which there are over 650 cities. Um, a big bustling city, but it was very foreign to us. You know, it changes once you go over the border from Hong Kong to the fact that English is not spoken mm. very widely. Um, you know, all the signs on, on the street signs, suddenly there's no English beneath the Chinese signs. Um, there are very, very few Westerners. Um, and the hotel itself was beautiful, a Western hotel there, um, but it was a very, very polluted day. So the grey sort of fog reached the ground. Right. Okay. It, the, you know, there were just kind of dilapidated buildings everywhere and those power lines that just crisscross all over each other, just a mash of, you know, tangled wires. And it just was, it was scary, I guess. It was just not what we know. And so we just kind of (laughs) lay on the heavenly bed in the Western that night and looked at each other and I'm just like, I don't think we can do it. And we both just had that feeling in our stomach. It was just too much. Yeah. Um, in hindsight, it probably wasn't, you know, it probably wasn't much different to Xi'an where we ended up. Sure. So we went back to the drawing board and, you know, jobs would come and go for another eight months or so. And some, another one came up in China in a place called Hefei. Um, I Googled that because that's all you've got to go on, Absolutely. right? Sure. And it was nicknamed Nowheresville. <laughs> right. So immediately you crossed that off the list. Yeah. I was like, okay, right. You know, they said that people can't really drive. They're just learning to drive. So right. because cars haven't been very prominent in China for that long. So um, they were saying they ask foreigners to sort of parallel park in the streets. <laughs> and so it's like, okay, so cross that off the mm. list. And things came and went. And then Xi'an came up and sure. I Googled that. And that looked really quintessentially Chinese and I think that was because it had you know red lanterns strung up across the city it was quite beautiful a lot of the ancient architecture with those sort of winged rooftops that are very Chinese and oriental Um, lots of pagodas and temples and bell towers and a big wall around the city so it was quite spectacular Mm -hmm. and by that stage I'm like, James, we've just got to do it. Make a decision. We've got to get it done. We're going to be sitting here waiting another couple of years and it's got to be done. Um, I was terrified but excited. Mm -hmm. So I said, let's do it. And he got the job and away we went. Ava was three and a half. Wow. Wow, wow. So what I loved in the book as well about how you would uh, recount the stories of when you first arrived and taking Ava, who I imagine is this beautiful little blonde pink ball of fun and high energy and divine out in the streets and she would just be like a celebrity like you were being packed I know yeah tell me I how did that thing <laughs> as a mum was it disconcerting to start with very I mean we were a little bit used to it because of Hong Kong because a lot of the mainlanders would come shopping in Hong Kong sure. in those days and they would you would know who they were because they would gravitate more to Ava um so yeah I look we arrived in Xi'an James had to go to work the next day so it was all a bit here we are on our own in this big city of nine million people 
all very foreign. Um, I remember just looking out the window thinking, where are we? Yeah. You know, where? what have I done? Mm-hmm. I don't know if we can do this. And, of course, you've got to keep up pretenses for your little child. Of and course. Everything's fine, honey, don't worry, and we'll get through this. And I remember we sort of ventured outside the hotel doors and, yeah, because there was a big tourist um site opposite with the pagoda that had been there for 1300 years and they used to bring the buddhist sanskrits there i think and um or house them there so it was quite a notable you know place so there were tourists from all over china there so tourists that came from much more remote places Mm -hmm. as well who had never ever seen a white person so of course the fascination was massive but i didn't know this at the time but i remember just walking around the neighborhood just to get a feel for it and everyone sort of running by taking photos of us or or sort of shyly hiding behind and snapping a picture here and there and then suddenly if we stopped crowds just kind of swarmed us Mm -hmm. and I think I wrote in the book, I remember an old man picked Ava up. Yes, I was concerned about that. Oh, I can imagine you would have oh felt so God. stressed. Yeah. yeah, I was just like, what is he doing? And she's obviously horrified. And then everyone around her is clapping and cheering, and, you know, and I'm sort of yelling, put her down. And, of course, I had no, no. no Mandarin. <laughs> no. Oh, my God, I just sort of grabbed her off them and I'm trying to look angry. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, I didn't know for them it's very harmless. Yeah, you know, course. I learnt that as time went on, that it is just a pure harmless um, fascination. Mm. The white skin, you know, I remember when I found a hairdresser there, he was like, you know, you – eat like us you breathe like us but you look absolutely nothing like us why is that totally because people forget that you know it's really only those top tier cities that see a lot of westerners so xi'an was the second tier there's one two three four and you know they only have their american movies Mm -hmm. you know that they Mm -hmm. see if they choose to so we're strangers we are strangers (laughs) absolutely absolutely i was always so desperate to have a bit of an overseas work stint and in fact we were all set to go to Canada this is like 24 years ago then I fell pregnant and anyway we never ever did so by yeah. reading your book I felt like I have I've almost not quite ticked the box but I feel I've explored what that would have looked like yeah. so I thank you honestly so much for that because I think a lot of people are intrigued as to it's like a sliding doors thing what could life have been yeah, exactly. and you've answered that so it's, thank it's you. so interesting <laughs> but you make a really interesting comment that Expat life is wonderful at both magnifying and hiding relationship flaws, making or breaking you. And mm. I've got a couple of friends who've done some Asian ex- expat mm. sort of stints, and uh, that would be my take on it as well. Some of them came back in, a, their relationship was blossoming, they were very mm. cohesive, mm. whereas for others it was it was a very, very tough time. I think so, and I've seen the same. Um, you know, I see, I've seen a lot of relationships fall apart, but then I've seen a lot, as you say, become so much stronger yes. and closer because you've been through something and you have to have each other's yeah, back absolutely. because it's just you two against the world, you know. And that was, I guess, the good thing about and probably one of the reasons I went um, and was more open to it was because I had met James a couple of years earlier yeah. and I was it was later in life and I knew that we were a team and mm-hmm. I knew that he would have my back. Sure. Um, you know, because I think going with anyone else, you know, it would be a struggle, especially for me going and quitting my job. You know, it resentment moves. creeps in at times naturally because who are you and you've lost your identity, especially having a baby like any mum feels. Um, so I was just thinking... You know, well, yeah, I think we just managed to 
really stay on the same page that most of the time and you you have to so James and I managed to become even stronger through that experience because you have to stay on the same page or it will collapse you know especially I remember in places like Hong Kong where it is such a you know there are so many expats and the whole thing of going out into Soho there and staying out till all hours of the night is quite a novelty and everyone has helpers and so you don't have to worry about the children and mm. it could it can be a recipe for disaster yes yes so you know um in it was good in a way that I was having a baby and kind of missed that side mm. of Hong Kong mm. um and James and I would always sort of find ourselves sitting down, you know, we talked every day, but we would have a really deep and meaningful, probably what would be every six months or so, we'd find ourselves out on our own and just really talk to each other about where we were at Great. and make sure that we knew where we wanted to be Good. and that that was the same. Because yep. if one of us, you know, it's easy for one of you to suddenly think, well, I'm loving this expat life. I don't want to go home when maybe the other one's desperate to get back home. Absolutely. So that's where it can be tricky. Um, all about communication. Yep. Regardless of where you live. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't matter where you are the world yeah. over. I think you've just got to keep talking you do. and, um, and be supportive of each yes. other because James always knew that I had given up my career in that way. So he knew I had to find something of mm-hmm. my own as well. Mm-hmm. And I was supportive that he was in a totally new job, both in Hong Kong and Xi'an with very high pressure, yes. different ways. Yes. So, you know, it works both ways. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. You guys definitely pulled it off, didn't you? Like, Thank yeah, goodness. You know, yeah, you really we did. did. I don't think you can break that bond no. once you've done that. No, yeah. no. It was so beautiful the way he really... was so supportive of you, particularly when you first arrived. And because it was tough, mm. you know, and he'd give you some time and he was really, – I don't know, yeah. I just thought there was such a, there was such a lovely synchronicity yeah. there. It was, yeah. It was beautiful. It's, I'm it was very lucky. Read. Really lucky yeah. in that way, yeah. Absolutely. So um, as a fellow blonde, Nicole, I was <laughs> – intrigued by how you were going to manage your hair oh so was I (laughs) because you know I mean you and you and I be quite similar sort of every six to eight Mm. weeks when we go in and we top up the roots we get out you know get ourselves back on track but somewhere like Xi'an where there aren't a lot of naturally blonde ladies Mm. around was quite challenging Mm, it was tell me about that and you know um people sort of laugh at it because I mean I always was at the hairdresser because of being a newsreader. Yes. It was part of the job. Indeed. You had to have your hair done um, most days. So I, I became used to a good blow dry. Yeah. Um, and when I went to Hong Kong, I sort of found one, an Aussie guy. Right. And um, that was great. And then we went to Xi'an and I just remember asking around, or James asked obviously his PA who was Chinese and they said there was one across the road. So I thought, okay, well, we'll try that. And and Tina, his PA, came with me at first because obviously I couldn't speak a word of Chinese. So we went um, across the road and, oh, my gosh, uh, <laughs> they just looked at me like, who the hell are you and what are you doing here? And, you know, the white lady with the white hair and the, I had white nail polish and so, you know, I, I got it blow-dried. I didn't try for the colour. No. Um, and, of course, I met Gao, who I mentioned in the book, and he was this oh. cheeky, you know, mischievous young Chinese guy, and he was desperate to, you know, learn about Westerners of as course. well. So I remember him saying, you know, I teach you, you teach me. I'm like, sure, okay. 
And um, I said to him something about, have you colored hair in some way? I got that across to him. And he said, yes, yes, let me show you. And he showed me the picture of the one Westerner's hair he's ever colored. And it was bright red. Oh, don't, like, don't, so yes. orange. And he's like, but I can do yours, trust me. And I thought, oh, my God, I don't really know about this. And they had two shades of blonde, mm, whereas you normally, that. you know, you'll get the, the color chart. It's about 50 shades of blonde. Absolutely. And I thought, oh, this could be tricky. So I used to go to Hong Kong at the first um, and then I thought that's just not really um, sustainable. No. So I um, got my colour, got my colour from Hong Kong yep. and brought that back. And I remember showing it to Galay and the other hairdressers and it had Chinese on it. So I figured hmm, that would be straightforward and I had the instructions in Chinese and they just were pouring over it, looking at it as if, don't know what this means. I thought, how can you not know? Yeah. But then it dawned on me later that because in Hong Kong they um, have uh, traditional Chinese characters, and in the mainland it's simplified right. Chinese I didn't characters. That. So okay. there would have been a difference sure. there, which might have um, perplexed them. <laughs> yep. Anyway, I did end up getting just the roots done, no foils, nothing fancy. No. Um, a little orange, but you a know, brassy did the job. Um, but it was always such a fun experience. It really, because I guess you, you know, people laugh and go, what's well, just hair, get no. over it or dye your hair brown or whatever. But it's more than that. It's more than just color. It's your identity Point. and it's and who so you are. That. And it's, I've always been blonde and, you know, I had, had lost so much of my identity, um, that that just helped to keep a yeah. snippet of the old me was to do a trip to the hairdresser once a week. Mm-hmm. Mind you, a very different trip it was. Yes. But it was also fun because I got to I got a real insight into the everyday Chinese person. Yes. You know, because they were the real authentic Chinese that you see, um, you know, um, and over time, which I never thought this would happen, but they sort of became friends as much as you can when you speak different languages and the more Chinese I learned and he would teach me a lot we could have conversations and we even went out to coffee once which was really (laughs) really strange but I felt like I was really making inroads and it was just so interesting and fascinating as well for me so not just about the hair not just about the hair so much more yeah and you made the point as well that, you know, when you, particularly when you first arrived, you felt like you'd obviously lost a lot of your identity. Mm. You'd been eroded, but it helped you retain it. So I thought that yeah, was really interesting. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. You know, because, you you know, when you go overseas and you are the trailing spouse, mm. it's suddenly not about you. No. And then when you have a baby, it's not about Definitely you. Definitely not about you. And my whole life had been about my career and building up to becoming a newsreader. So it took a while to sort of shed that Um that layer I guess of me and work out who I was without Mm. all of that of course and also feel worthy without all of that indeed 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 absolutely so tell me about how you go about making friends in a foreign country with very few westerners (laughs) with a language barrier because you seem to pull it off but it took a while it did it did in Hong Kong I had a couple of friends already which I was very lucky before you arrived yes they were already there Um, but what I I remember in Hong Kong I found they had all these pregnancy groups so you joined a group who were due about the same time as you okay so I found a group of people due end of January early Feb and um 
uh, you know, it was so out of my comfort zone. You know what it's like. It's like you really don't want to go and meet these people that you don't know and sit around and make small talk. But I knew I had to sure. force myself to do it. So off I waddled in Hong Kong. <laughs> you know, I got lost, beads of sweat dripping down me, arrived at this restaurant, another, you know, dozen other mums with big bellies. So yep. I knew they were my group. And, you know, you just need to find one person that you connect with. Absolutely. I always say that you don't need a lot. One and, you know, then you've got someone to have a coffee with once a week totally to chew the fat with so that was great and then we moved to Xi'an I sort of found my tribe in Hong Kong you know as you do it takes time it, you know it took a good couple of years um, and when we moved to Xi'an I kind of wasn't interested because I felt like no one could replace my Hong Kong yeah. tribe and I'd put myself out there so much and done so much to make these new friends I just thought oh, I can't do it all again it's too hard um, but after a few months, I realised that I needed you to needed do it. You needed to, Because, yeah. you know, you can't survive on your own. No, you, you can't. Know, um, people need people. And thank goodness there weren't any groups or anything. There was one group on WeChat, which is the equivalent of sort of WhatsApp, but much more like Twitter and WhatsApp and Instagram rolled into one. Mm-hmm. And um, they had sort of a lunch group. But that wasn't very active. Um, and it wasn't really until I started picking Ava up from school yes, um, because it was, of course, education's cutthroat there. And she went to an international school because there were two there um, and it was nine to three for a three and a half year old, five days a week. And I was like, I can't it's do it. It's a big commitment, it. isn't it? It's yeah, huge. Too much. So I just thought I'll pick her up at lunchtime. Hmm. So I did that for quite a while. So, of course, I missed seeing anyone there that I could have had that potential friendship with. Finally, when I started going in at three, um, I spotted another blonde. Perfect. Like, I see you. (laughs) Can we be friends? Yes, of Um, course. And, you know, then she invited me to uh, a thing at her house and there were about, you know, probably every expat that existed in Xi'an in that small room, which was probably about 25 of us. Wow. And, you know, therein begin the friendships and you're from all walks of life and probably many people that you wouldn't be friends with normally. Um, And you, you know, but you've got that common bond that you have all stepped out of your comfort zone and chosen to go on this adventure. So immediately that's something in common, even if you're so different in every other way. Um, And, you know, you find your tribe again. And I I was lucky another girl who was at another, her kids were at another international school, found me via my blog because I blogged a lot and I was blogging about hair problems and she needed a blonde hairdresser. She was American. And so she emailed me. So we had a blind date and met in a cafe. And, um, yeah, from that moment on, we never looked back. Was that Lauren? That was Laura. Laura. And then um, Lee in the book, um, she was Chinese, but I say, you know, the most westernised Chinese person I've ever met and hilarious and, you know, probably 14 years younger, but just the three of us just really gelled. So good. Never left each other's sides, which you really need more than ever in a place like China because – you know, you just even for medication, oh, of, yeah. you know, you can't just go and get what you need and for anything. Mm-hmm. So you're sort of each other's family. Absolutely. You're each other's everything. Absolutely. When your husbands are out working all day. and Totally. But how good was it having Lee who could speak the language? Yeah. <gasps> yeah. Great she, friend to have. Oh, yeah. So poor, she had to, you know, translate for us all the time, yeah. order the pizza yeah, for us, you know, ring up, make nail appointments. Go to the acupuncturist. Yeah, we yep. came to the acupuncturist, ring the doctors, um, you know, she did everything. We're like, you know, can you do this? Can you can, well, can yep. you translate? What does this mean on my phone? What are they saying, you know, or answer my phone for me when it rings because I don't know what they're going to say. Yeah. And she was married to a Dutch guy. She was, yeah. Okay. So, okay. 
Yeah. Fantastic. So, so tell me, we've all heard of a bikini and we've heard yeah. of a mankini. What is a face kini? Mm. I found this really intriguing. Did you? Yeah, I did. It tell started me about to become it. a bit of a trend, I mean, in China, because the thing with China, a face kini is basically head to toe. It's like oh. a, a, a swimsuit that comes from top to toe with your eyes right. and your nose and your mouth poking out. Oh, see, I just assumed it was for the face. Oh, no, no it's, it's a full bo- oh, body. Oh, it's a full body. Yeah. And wow. because in China they're, they're the opposite to us, they want to be as white mm-hmm. as possible. Indeed. Um, because, you know, being darker is a sign of being poor because the, the labourers were always darker. So, you know, whitening creams. You go into a chemist and it's just wall-to-wall yeah. whitening creams. There's no tanning. You can't get <laughs> tanning no, creams sure. for the life of you. Um, yeah, so they want to be as white as possible so they don't go in the sun. And even if we would go to resorts um, sometimes for a holiday within China, um, we would be at the pool during the day and no locals would be there. But come five o'clock when the sun goes down, they would all sort of converge on the Isn't pool and jump yeah. around. They don't sort of lay around it. They no. jump around in the pool for maybe 20 minutes, get out and back to their room. Right, okay. Because yeah. they don't want, they obviously no, don't want their... which yeah. is, very, you know, probably a good thing. Yeah, of course it is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting, interesting. And did you buy, you obviously didn't buy a face candy while you were there? No, no. I chose not to. No, 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 no. Just thought it wouldn't suit me. <laughs> no, exactly. Absolutely, absolutely. So um, you've got a chapter in your book called Women Hold Up Half the Sky. Mm. And that's based on a comment from Chairman Mao, I think he made, yes. sort of late 60s. Yes. And that was when he was really emancipating women, I suppose. He was, you know, sort of trying to stop the, the feet binding and the forced marriage and the concubining. Mm. Do you know how I say yeah, yeah. Well, they say he was. Others say that he was. Um, <laughs> there was an agenda he, there. There was a hidden agenda that he just wanted women out in the field yeah, as well. To get them working. <laughs> get more workers. Totally. Exactly. Totally. Totally. But you obviously, towards the end of the book, you interviewed a lot of women because you were quite interested in their role and the history. And yep. what did you think about, like that, that quote of Mao's, women hold up half the mm. sky. Do you think women in China really struggled to, I suppose, gain equality like we do in the Western countries because of the very traditional history, which really sort of, I suppose, positioned women in quite a subservient mm. role where they had to obey men? And Or do you think that, does that been a bit of a noose around their neck, that history? Yeah, possibly. Look, it's such a hard one to answer because yes and no, you know. I mean, I used to ask James in as a boss of 400 people if he saw that divide within the workforce and he didn't really see it, which okay. was a good thing. Yeah, Women very good. were equal to men in the workforce um, and I guess the one-child policy mm-hmm. that was in until literally, I think it was 2016, it was... Um, change to two children but that probably enabled women to have more of a career because they only had one child and I remember when it was changed to have two a lot of them didn't want that Mm. because they were thinking you know this is going to hinder my career opportunities Mm. because I mean I don't want to be at home Mm -hmm. having a family so there was that side of it but then there's the other side where they've still got this whole leftover women attitude which is was only I can't remember when it was coined but it wasn't that long ago um where if you reach 27 as a woman in China and you're not married, you're considered left over. Um, so harsh. Yeah. So this is still a very big thing there and there are still marriage markets all over China. Okay. Like um, arranged marriages. Yeah. Um, oh, no. You know, in Shanghai they'll have um, a special day and at the markets parents usually will go along with their sort of 
little poster with all the stats of either their son or their right. daughter. You know, rich, tall, handsome. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> right. Okay. So you know, trying to marry them off because in for the older um, women in the villages specifically it's you know it's not the right thing if your child's not married um they lose face right so i mean there's this thing where they will um young people you know in their 30s will hire a partner to take home because everyone goes home for chinese new year right that was intriguing so no one wants to go home without a partner because you are looked down on so um you know you can hire a partner for the week or (laughs) it's really a thing but i think that is changing because i did interview a lot of younger women and they're like no 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 i'm gonna wait i'm not just gonna get married um, by 27 i'm not gonna feel those effects Mm, of mm. you know not doing the right thing but it really comes from the top down, from those older traditional yes. mums, yes. you know. Interesting, isn't yeah. it? Interesting. Did yeah. you come across anyone who had been married off at those markets by that marketplace? I didn't. In your research? No, I okay. didn't. I didn't. I don't think so. Okay. I mean, they could have. They probably just wouldn't have stayed. No, they would have been You know, um, because when couples get married in China, it's two families marrying too. It's not yes. just the individuals. Yes. You know, and usually um, what has happened until recently is, as the wife, you have to go and live with your husband's family, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's just the way it is. Mm, so, that. and you go into their each family has a huko, which is an identity booklet. You go into their booklet. Oh, so you're removed from your own family. You're removed from your yeah, own. Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. So, oh, it's just there are so many traditions there. It's yes. really a country steeped in, mm. you know, those traditions that last, you know, still today, even though it's changing by the second and, and infrastructure and their ability to create is, you know, well adv- mm. advanced of other countries, there's still that stigma, you know, and yes. that old-fashioned It's very contradictory in thought. so many it ways, is, isn't it? It is, really yeah. contradictory. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the reasons you decided to move back to Australia was because of your health. And mm. you describe towards the end of the book this pollution, which I think you describe as an apocalypse. Yeah. <laughs> it sounded incredible. And some of those readings on that pollution scale were, yeah. were, were appalling. I know. And, I ha- you know, um, it was just you, you have to see it to believe it. I, I mean, we kind of saw a bit of it when we had the really bad bushfires yes, in Sydney. Yes, we did. Um, you know, you couldn't see across the harbour. And that's what, what it would be like most mm. of winter. I mean, wow. summer, a different story. Okay. Clearest day, a furnace, but yeah. super clear. Yeah. But as soon as winter came, and it's not every city, but especially up north more so. Mm. Um, and look, there are so many reasons as well um, as to why it's so polluted and everyone will give you a different answer. Of course. You know? So what are, what are, what are the, big, the biggest explanations, the most common ones? The most common ones um, is that they use dirty coal to fire up the heating over winter. Okay. Um, And you can see like massive plumes of smoke coming out of the the smokestacks, you know, pumped Mm -hmm. into the air. Um, You know, the the city Xi'an was sort of in a bowl as well and totally surrounded so the air would get trapped. Um, The factories, it's the factory floor of the world. Yes pumping day and night because they can stop it you know I remember yeah. going to Beijing um, and it was the commemoration of World War Two, I think and they had stopped factories the week before they had stopped half the cars on the road you know only cars with even numbered ending plates could drive mm-hmm. and this guy was so blue isn't that interesting so it can be blue <laughs> yeah so winter was just you know we would have to wear masks um, who would have thought and that was such an you know 
strange thing back then. Mm. Now the world's wearing masks, but we had masks with little filters on them. And, you know, Ava had to wear one in the playground. Um, you know, we would. there were days when I would just rush her out of the car into the classroom as quick as we could. Yeah. I mean, the air was so thick. It was like you were in, you know, some incinerator Gosh. of smoke and burning and, you, you know, you would choke. And even at home, you know, we would have all the um, – filters running around the clock you know the air purifiers Mm. and still you could smell the smoke in the house and you couldn't avoid it so Ava had quite bad um, bronchitis and coughs and I did and that was one of as you say one of the reasons that we thought we can't stay too long here because it's probably like inhaling you know 25 cigarettes a day if not more (laughs) Um, so towards the end of the stay you met this really interesting young man from Tibet Tashi yes Tashi and he tells you that there are three things we don't speak about in China Tibet Tiananmen Square and Taiwan yes was that your experience that people just don't go there yeah the three T's yeah you just don't go there um it's just you know being ingrained from them from a very young age um, by the government that mm-hmm. you you don't speak about them because there's so much controversy surrounding all of those three things. Of you course. know, I don't think any school textbook would have a thing about Tiananmen Square. Most Chinese mm-hmm. don't know about it. Yeah. Um, you know, Tibet, of course, now is under China rule and, you know, Taiwan, we all know about that. So they're just um, political hot potatoes. Sure. And no one speaks about them so we were in a cafe and I was interviewing him um, like you're interviewing me now about his life and living he lived in Qingdao actually which was Tibetan but not in Tibet you know but there was a Tibetan um, state so he was telling me about that and I mentioned something he's like be quiet you know we just mm-hmm. say tea if you want to say yeah, Tibet that was interesting wasn't it I was like oh okay and yeah. I was quite naive to what that meant yeah. at that time um but yeah, most Chinese really don't speak about politics okay. at all. Like we, you know, we all sit around and we'll chat about what's happening mm-hmm. and it's in the papers and, um, you know, it's just a normal part of our conversation, but it's not. Just with, it's, just, it's not just, it's just not a topic. Yeah. Okay. You know? And do you think that's because that whole, of the whole social credit system that operates in um, China? Well, they didn't have that. They do okay. now, but they didn't have it back then. Okay. So that, well, that's a relatively new yes, thing. Yes, that's okay. very new. That almost was coming in after we left. Okay. Um, do you think you could explain that for people who are listening, the social credit oh, system? Oh, gosh, I'll try to. Yeah. I've forgotten about it. But basically you lose points for doing things that aren't, <laughs> um, you know, right. For example, if you um, – if you're misbehaving on a plane, you'll lose points or on a train um, or you won't be able to buy a house. Mm. Um, and I think all of this is just part of, for so long, China has been so busy bringing that country of 1.4 billion out of poverty, you know, because most of the country yes. was in poverty until 20 years ago. Um, so they have been so busy building the economy up that they kind of, forgot or didn't have time to worry about um, the people mm. and etiquette and manners and the environment and all of that, okay. which is why, you know, you'll see them on planes um, pushing and shoving and shouting. And and we think they're quite rude. Yeah, but, but they actually haven't been taught. No, no, they don't know any better and yeah. they don't mean to do that. It's just, you know, they're from very primitive areas, sure. most of them, and they've all been sort of bundled into the cities as the villages sort of die out. Um, so suddenly now the government is kind of trying to build up 
their reputation mm-hmm. and give them some guidance. There are books out on, you know, how to behave mm. and all of that. So I think the social credit system was part of that. Okay, yeah. interesting. Mm. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. Um, now, the other thing I'd love to just quickly touch mm. on is obviously, the, you know, Australia and China are in a bit of a tricky place relationship-wise. Mm. And obviously we don't want to get too political on this, but it'd be great to understand from your perspective uh, what you think is going on from, I suppose, from the view of the average Chinese person. So at the moment, China is punishing Australia. Mm. I suppose punishing is a bit of a harsh word, but we've got um, extra tariffs on our wine. They're holding up barley and grains and rice at the wharf, um, you know, and there's been a lot of um, sort of mm. that nasty photograph that was shared mm. recently about the Australian soldier and the Afghanistan yes. situation. I mean, some people think they're making a bit of a, a sending a message to Australia, really, that, you know, they are in charge, but be great to know what you think about mm, that from your time so, there. Yeah, look, it's quite possible that's what they're doing. Um, China doesn't like to lose face at all. That's just a big, big thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so yeah, I think it's possible that they are obviously sending a measure to a measure a message to Australia. I don't know the ins and outs. You know, I know that the government, China as a whole country, does not like to lose face, and that's from the ground up. Um, It's just ingrained in the culture, Mm -hmm. Um, you know. um, I think that's the political side of it. I think the average Chinese person wouldn't have a clue. Yeah, this is well, this is what very is going on. Yeah. Would not have the faintest idea about this kind of argy bargy with Australia with any other country really because they really are kept in the dark. Um, They're in a bubble. I mean, it's like the whole Hong Kong, China situation as well. Um, They may, of course, the the university students and the younger generations are are finding out more because of things like Weibo and Twitter. But most of those generations, you know, 30 and upwards in the past have, you know, you ask them, what do you think about censorship? And they all say, what censorship? Yeah, they don't realise it happens. They don't realise yeah. and they don't really care. And that comes back to, again, the fact that the whole country was so poor for so long that they're just happy that the country's improving all yes. the time. And they love the government for that reason yeah. and that's all they care about. So they'll say, well, we, we see what's happening, even if the paper, the China Daily or whatever it is, has, you know, the headlines that are always favourable to the government, of never course. negative. Um that's what they know. Okay. Um, so, you know, I remember saying we were from Hong Kong when we first went to China. Many of them had never been. Um, many of them would not have a clue about sure. the politics that go on there, why Hong Kong people can be so hostile to them because they don't mm-hmm. understand it. Um, and let's face it, I think last count 10% of Chinese had a passport. And, wow. I mean, we feel like... They are traveling far and wide, mm-hmm. but I guess it's 10% of 1.4 billion. That's and right. You know what? That's only going to keep increasing. Absolutely. So I think we have a, a duty to kind of try and understand them a bit more. Mm. Okay. I mean, every day we see the headlines are quite, especially now, they're very negative um, and it's all about politics in the economy. Um, but I don't think that helps to understand the country as a whole and where yeah. they've come from, why they are like they are, because it's just so different See, I think to the way we are. So but at the same time, they have similar values. Yes. They want the same for their family. They all want to belong. Mm. And they were so encouraging and embracing of us as a white family. Um, I never felt unsafe. Um, I always felt looked after. 
Mm. You know, and I think that kind of gets lost amongst yes. all of the politics. Yeah. You know, to use the good old Atticus Finch quote out of Tickle and Mockingbird, you don't really understand a man until you've walked in his shoes. And I know you yes. haven't quite walked in Chinese shoes, but your experience, I have never thought of it like that before because no. I don't, I think we haven't taken the time to understand the history and where they're coming to, from. Really. And no, I don't think And I think until now, people, and I've been guilty of that before yeah. I even went to Asia, I yep. didn't really know much about it. And, you know, a lot of people, it doesn't matter. But mm. I think, we kind of need to as the world kind of gets smaller and we're, you know, I mean, at the moment, obviously it seems bigger than ever, but sure does. You know, that's going to change yep. again, hopefully. Of course, and of course. China's not going anywhere. China's not. It's just becoming a bigger, bigger mm. force. Very mm-hmm. interesting. Very interesting. Anyway, so I was going to say, so, so let we need to talk about COVID. So mm. tell me about your, your friends that are back in Xi'an. Mm. How has COVID been for them? Well, I think it was like it has been for all of us. It was, um, you know, crazy and everyone was sort of locked down, especially in the beginning when um, it seemed like China was the source and China was where it was at before we even knew it was coming our way. Um, But I think China has almost gone back to normal and that in itself is indicative of the way that they are and the fact that they can monopolise their people yes and get them to be one collective you know thing and mm. all do the right thing mm. and you know that whether that's right or wrong <laughs> it has worked yeah. for them because now they're almost um back to normal they all have um i think qr codes on their phone and um it will be i think red green i can't remember what else um but if it's green your health is good to go right and you're allowed into restaurants oh okay and yep events yep. if it's not you can't okay um i'm not sure what the testing levels are like at the moment but if for example there is any signs of covid which i think there was recently somewhere practically the whole city was shut down and tested right and they can test millions of people at once because they have the manpower yes Yes. and the ability to do it cheaply yeah of course so yeah i mean gosh they've done actually done really well they've done a good job and they will tell you (laughs) they They are very proud of themselves absolutely but at the same time i mean look who knows how it started i don't even want to go there let's 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 just not go there that's a whole nother three hours of conversation (laughs) and speculation so yeah yeah, well it is actually great great to see they're doing well it really isn't they're back to normal i think they've almost eradicated it so that's that's really good um so there's a lovely quote you share at the end of the book and you say a lot of people say you get lost in asia but i think I was found. I've come to realize that all the conflicting parts of me that I've long struggled with are what makes me whole. We are all a contradiction of sorts, just like China. So it's almost a very good oh, quote. It's quite a good quote. I wasn't loved it? that. <laughs> quite impressed I made that yeah. up. <laughs> Really loved that. In fact, I've just finished reading on Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed. Oh, oh, yes, I read that. That was very Glennon Doyle. Yeah, it was. Yes. Wow. Very me. Yeah, well done, Nicole. (laughs) But it's true because it is such a – that's what – as I was reading Mm. it, to me, it's such a country of conflicts. Yes. And we are – and as a human, we are – well, I know I am, but we're all so conflicted. We all have such conflicting emotions and and feelings, and it was so interesting that you – I know. Well, it was so hard to – how do you sum it up, you know, and how do we sum up what I've – learned out of this experience and you know you can't just sum it up in one way no way we can't sum up ourselves in one way you know I learned that there are so many different parts to me that make up who I am Mm -hmm. and that that is okay 
You don't have really to good. try to change and fit in a box and everything has to be in a row, you know. Mm. So I think if anything, that's what I've learned and that's what I've seen with China. Mm. Mm. So interesting, so interesting. Someone reading your book, what would you like them to come away with when they, you know, close the book and they go, yeah, that was a great read. I've really learned X from this book. What would you like that to be? Maybe I want them to feel like they've seen a little bit of themselves in the book um, because, of course, it's not all about China. It's about friendships and the people we choose to be friends with and what sustains that. And as we talked about relationships uh, um, and, yes, learn about the Chinese people and what it's like to live away um, and what it's like to lose our identity and reinvent ourselves. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can all see a little bit of ourselves in that and that will hopefully give them a nice feeling that you're not alone out there um, and hopefully I just want everyone to come away feeling good and they've they've read something good they've learned something along oh, the yes. way but it was also entertaining absolutely that's exactly how it was for me. educationally entertaining <laughs> it, it, <laughs> that was my blog's motto so we'll go with that let's do that because that's exactly <laughs> what it was I feel like I understand shyness so much more now I really do oh, having good. having read the book and uh and just so proud of you sorting out your hair <laughs> making some great friends and uh and, and and as you said reinventing yourself because it was a big journey going from this wonderful career you had in, in Sydney putting that on hold for the sake of your family and then coming out the other side with a new version of yourself. Mm, so it can good. be done. Can be done. <laughs> it can be done, absolutely. Now tell me, this is your first book. Yes. Is there another one on the horizon? Yes. Or is that a secret? Oh, there he is? Yes, there Do you want is. to share or is it a secret? No, it's not a secret. Tell us all it's about it. barely even, I've hardly written, but the new year will be a new me. Good. Um, it's going to be fiction because I don't have enough excitement really going on to do another memoir. <laughs> so, but it will be based in Hong Kong. Okay. Um, again, it will be about friendships and women. Beautiful. You know, the modern woman from all walks of life. Um, okay. All different types of relationships okay. joining together. And that's as far as I can Fine. get with that. Okay. But, yeah, hopefully I can get that done and out by the end of next year. Fantastic. Mm. So how will you attack that out of interest? Will you sort of say, okay, every day I'm going to write 500 words or by the end of the week I need to write this many words mm. or do you go or lock yourself away for a weekend and then don't think about it for a while? kind of comes in waves with me and I also have a, a monthly writer's workshop that I've been doing for over three years and that kind of keeps me accountable yes. because every month we meet and I have to show them words. Words. Oh, so it forces me to put words on yeah, paper um, and then they critique it and then we get kind of inspired to go okay. along for the next month. Okay. Um, so I'll do that and once promotion slows down a bit with yes. China Blonde, I will be able to, you know, dedicate more time right. to that. That's exciting. Yeah. It's exciting. It is, it is. So Nicole, if someone wants to buy the book, where do they go? Um, there we are, a few places. Um, you can come to my website for a signed copy, Ooh, which yes. I will post out to you. That's NicoleWebOnline.com. Um, you can go on Booktopia in Australia. Um, it's in good, all good bookstores. If it's not, ask them to get it in, and that'll be great for me too. Um, it's on Amazon as an ebook. Great. Um, and I can post globally, um, and I'm looking at getting the Amazon paperback up soon too. Great, terrific. So, yeah. Fantastic. Take your pick. Absolutely. <laughs> Something for everybody. Yeah. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks so for having nice me. to meet you. You too. And as I said, I felt like I knew you after reading your book. So it's a lovely to friend. actually. Yeah, I a love new a new friend. friend. Love a new friend. Thank anyway, you. we'll catch up with a new book. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you.